Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Week podcast, a companion to the free newsletter Psychedelic Week, which offers detailed analysis of psychedelic news, policy, and events available at psychedelicweek.com. I'm Mason Marks, a law professor at Florida State University College of Law, where I teach drug policy. I'm also the senior fellow and project lead of the Project on Psychedelics Law and Regulation at the Petrie Flom Center at Harvard Law School. I should mention that Psychedelic Week is an entirely independent project unaffiliated with these other programs and institutions, and the views expressed here do not represent the views of my employers. This is going to be a relatively informal podcast with relatively minimal production to allow me to record the podcast without a whole lot of preparation. And I thought that today I would cover four different topics, the first being a comparison between the regulated psychedelic programs of Oregon and Colorado. These two programs, uh, they have many similarities. They're often lumped together as though they are the same, but really there are many Uh, significant differences between them, and I'll get into those in this episode. The second topic I'd like to talk about is just a general update on the Natural Medicine Advisory Board of Colorado that has gotten well underway since being appointed earlier this year by Governor Jared Polis. Third, I'd like to talk about the growing movement to emphasize the decriminalization of psychedelic substances before or at least alongside the implementation of regulated programs. This is increasingly referred to as the decrim first movement. And then finally, I'd like to talk about psychedelics as a form of harm reduction. And a good example of that is the state of Kentucky just allocated several million dollars from the opioid settlement funds to fund research into ibogaine as an addiction treatment. First up, I'd like to talk about some of the primary differences between the regulated psychedelic programs of Oregon and Colorado. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, these two programs are often lumped in together. They're thought of as being very similar, or they are promoted as being similar by various groups. But in reality, they are very different. They have many significant differences that I think will actually grow over time as the rulemaking process for the Colorado program proceeds. So just a quick list of some of the differences. The first is the substances that will be available under each of these programs. The second is some of the terminology that's used by the law and the regulations. The third is the nature of the services that are offered, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, For example, whether they are therapeutic, non-therapeutic, or somewhere in between between those two extremes, some kind of a hybrid. Uh, and, And part of that as well is whether an integration session is required or not, and I will uh, define what that is. Then there are differences in the location that these psychedelic services can be offered. There are differences regarding equity and access and the priorities that are placed on those um, uh, issues in each state. And then finally, I'll talk about some differences in the data collection requirements. 
So first off, I want to talk about a little bit of the background of these two programs for people who might not be familiar with them. So far, Oregon and Colorado are the only two states to have implemented or at least enacted laws to create regulated access to psilocybin in the case of Oregon and psilocybin and potentially some other substances in the case of Colorado. Now, um, one of the differences I didn't mention is that they are at very different stages of their rollout. So Oregon is wrapping up the rulemaking process that started about two and a half years ago, and Colorado is just at the beginning of that process. So the service centers, as they're called, that will start offering psilocybin to people in Oregon are set to open this month in June of 2023. And uh, because Colorado is a couple years behind Oregon, we, we won't see service centers or healing centers, as they're called in Colorado, open until 2025. So a little more background. Oregon voters approved Ballot Measure 109, which was also called the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act in November of 2020. And that triggered the two-year rulemaking or implementation period. And at the start of that period in the spring of 2021, then Governor Kate Brown appointed members to the Psilocybin Advisory Board, which made rules or at least recommendations regarding the rules to the Oregon Health Authority, the public health agency that oversees the rulemaking process, uh, actually drafts the final rules, and will oversee the licensing program and its operation for these psilocybin businesses. So the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board made recommendations for about a year. It's still meeting ongoing, but the bulk of its work was wrapped up uh, after about a year. And the Oregon Health Authority took those recommendations into consideration and published final rules for the psilocybin industry in the state last December in 2022. And then the health authority started accepting licenses, licensing applications, that is, for businesses in the psilocybin program. And again, we're going to see the first service center open in June. Now, in Colorado, which is a couple years behind Oregon, voters approved ballot measure 122 or Proposition 122, which was also called the Natural Medicine Health Act in November of last year in 2022. And then Governor Jared Paulus appointed members to the Natural Medicine Advisory Board in January. And you can read about the backgrounds of the board members at psychedelicweek.com in an article published on January 29th. So far, the full advisory board has met only twice. It held its first meeting in April, a second meeting in May, and it will hold its third meeting this month in June. But they've already set up a handful of subcommittees that have had several meetings. Some of them meet every two weeks, and I'll give you an update on that board uh, after I talk about the differences between these two state programs. So that's a little bit of background on the programs. Again, the Oregon program is far ahead of Colorado. It's going to open up 
in June and Colorado, we won't actually see these healing centers open up until 2025. So let's get into some of the differences in addition to the uh, their degree of completion or where they are in the implementation phase. The first is in the substances that will be offered at these regulated centers. So to start off, um, both states will be offering psilocybin. And in Oregon, it will only be psilocybin that will be offered for the foreseeable future. That was the only substance that was included in Measure 109. And it's conceivable that additional substances could be added to the program in the future, but that would require an act of the legislature or a new ballot initiative, which is probably pretty unlikely because it would cost an awful lot of money and resources, really millions of dollars. So for the foreseeable future in Oregon's psychedelic program, we will only see psilocybin offered. Now contrast that with the Colorado program under the Natural Medicine Health Act. Right off the bat, it allows for psilocybin to be provided at healing centers once they open in 2025. And down the road, there can be three additional psychedelics offered, including ibogaine, mescaline, and dimethyltryptamine. Now, there are actually two psychedelics that will be offered in Oregon and Colorado in the beginning. It's really psilocybin and psilocin. I just consider them a single substance because psilocybin is converted to psilocin in the body. And so they're really the, they're really the same thing, different stages of the same thing. Now, in order for additional substances to be added in Colorado, at least under the Natural Medicine Act as currently enforce the natural medicine advisory board would have to make a recommendation to add them and then the governing agency which is currently dora the department of regulatory agencies would have to approve that recommendation so there are sort of two tiers of approvals that have to be made in order for any of those three substances to be added to the healing centers and they can't be added until June 1st of 2026. Now, one interesting thing that happened recently, there was an amendment to the Natural Medicine Health Act that was just signed by the governor, and that effort was spearheaded by Senator Steve Fenberg, who is the president of the Colorado Senate. That made some pretty significant changes to the Natural Medicine Health Act, and um, I'll talk about those those changes another time, but one of them was that it potentially accelerated the timeline in which the Natural Medicine Advisory Board can recommend Ibogaine to be added to the list of substances that are offered. That can now happen at any time. So it could happen immediately in July, which is when the amendment goes into effect. But um, that would be pretty unlikely. But with this change, the advisory board no longer needs to wait until June 1st, 2026, in order to recommend that Ibogaine be added to the definition of natural medicines and the substances that can be provided at healing centers in Colorado, while the other substances, mescaline and dimethyltryptamine, those cannot be recommended until June 1st, 2026. That means that potentially board and the governing agencies could approve Ibogaine for use and it could become available in 2025 alongside psilocybin and be available potentially over a year before the other substances 
mescaline and dimethyltryptamine can even be recommended for inclusion in the program. It's kind of a peculiar change to single out ibogaine as opposed to mescaline and dimethyltryptamine or DMT. And the reason I think it's a little bit odd is because ibogaine is arguably the psychedelic that has the most safety concerns. And we hear many people, including members of the Colorado board, raising concerns about the safety of psilocybin, which the evidence suggests is really quite safe, uh, at least based on the, the data that we have available to us. There are, of course, risks, but it appears to be fairly safe. But for Ibogaine, there are clear risks involving uh, potential cardiac injury. And so it's interesting that with all the concerns around psilocybin, a relatively safe substance, that the senator uh, who sponsored this bill, Fenberg, would prioritize Ibogaine. I suspect part of the reason is because Ibogaine has potential to be part, at least part of the solution to the opioid overdose crisis that uh, we are seeing in this country. But that really hasn't been firmly established. And um, with the uh, safety risks, it just seems like an odd choice. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see if we get more information about why that choice was made. I don't mean to suggest that it's a bad thing necessarily to add Ibogaine to the available substances. I just don't really understand why it would be prioritized over the remaining substances and why not just uh, make the change to all three and allow the board the discretion to recommend that all three be added when they decide that it's appropriate. I should point out that in both Oregon and Colorado, there are also decriminalization laws in effect that decriminalize psychedelics to some extent or another. And there are some differences there as well. For example, in Oregon, it's actually a different law, which which voters approved as Measure 110 alongside Measure 109 back in 2020, November of 2020. And that at least partially decriminalized most psychedelics, or at least the classic psychedelics. And in Colorado, by comparison, that decriminalization law is actually built in to the Natural Medicine Health Act. So that's another differences, difference between the laws of Oregon and Colorado. But I'm not talking about the decriminalization uh, uh, laws of these states right now. I really just want to focus on comparing the regulated psychedelic programs. Another point of comparison or difference between these two state laws is in the terminology that's used within them. So for example, the Oregon law is called the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act, and it uses the term services instead of medicine or therapy or something like that. And that reflects the general non-medical, non-therapeutic nature of the Oregon law. And I'll give you some examples. So for the people who receive psilocybin at service centers are referred to as clients instead of patients. And those centers are called service centers instead of medical centers or therapy centers or healing centers, which is the term that's used in Colorado. Another point of comparison is that the term therapy is not used in the main body of Oregon's law. And really, it's just that, that psilocybin services term that is used repeatedly throughout.
That's quite different from Colorado's law, which obviously has the word healing in the title, the natural or nat, or health, the natural medicine health act. And the, the centers where psilocybin is dispensed are called healing centers. The people who receive psilocybin, they're called participants instead of clients. I'm not sure why that change was made. And then there are some other differences that are not so much in terms of terminology, but in terms of the nature of the services. And so that kind of brings me to that point, which I've already alluded to, and that is that Oregon's program is a non-therapeutic program. Uh, Some people refer to it as supported adult use or supervised adult use, and I like to describe it as being similar to the recreational or adult use cannabis programs that exist in many states where people can purchase and consume cannabis for any reason. They don't need a prescription or a medical diagnosis, and they can use the cannabis for any reason they like, whether it is uh, for wellness purposes or spirituality or creativity or to help them sleep or whatever. Now, the difference between Oregon's psilocybin program and an adult use cannabis program is that the psilocybin program in Oregon requires the supervision of the trained and licensed facilitator, and that's why it's called supported adult use or supervised adult use. The supervision is the difference, but just like adult use cannabis, there's no prescription required, no medical diagnosis required in Oregon, and the facilitators who are only required to have a high school diploma or equivalent, and then they have to go on and complete one of the state-approved training programs in Oregon, which requires them to complete 160 hours of training. 120 of that is what you might think of as traditional classroom instruction, and 40 hours of that is practical training with uh, actual clients or at least a simulation of the the experience with clients. So the training is relatively minimal at least compared to what a health provider would have to go to go through which could be literally thousands of hours of um, maybe a medical residency or a training uh, program or a clinical internship or apprenticeship that a therapist would go through. So the training of the facilitators in Oregon is important, but it's fairly minimal compared to what a lot of other professionals go through. And that's okay because the facilitators in Oregon are not intended to be healthcare providers. They are not trained to diagnose or treat health conditions. And in fact, the final rules for the industry released by the health authority in December actually prohibit facilitators from making medical claims. They're prohibited from diagnosing and treating medical conditions, and they cannot operate within a service center that's located within a healthcare facility. So you cannot open a service center within a healthcare facility. Think about how you might go to a dermatologist and they might have an aesthetics practice within the, that healthcare facility. You won't be able to open a service center like in one of the rooms within your uh, medical practice. All of this is to say that the services offered in Oregon's psilocybin program, the regulated program created by Measure 109, is a non-medical, non-therapeutic program by law. Now, contrast that with Colorado's Natural Medicine Health Act. 
it does not have those restrictions that are built into Oregon's Measure 109. For example, it does not prohibit the state from requiring a medical diagnosis or a doctor's prescription. It does not prohibit the healing centers from being located within a healthcare facility. And it does not prohibit the facilitators from making medical claims or from diagnosing and treating health conditions. So there's a really stark difference in the nature of the services that will be offered in Oregon and Colorado. Now, that does not mean that the natural medicine services uh, that are offered in Colorado cannot be non-medical in addition to being medical. Uh, And I think that many of the voters who approved the Natural Medicine Health Act believe that it would be a, a, a broad umbrella, a big tent that would welcome many, many different types of practitioners. And that does seem to be the intent of the Natural Medicine Advisory Board. The Natural Medicine Health Act requires a tiered licensing system, a system that has different types of facilitator licenses. Now, that's another difference, actually, between the two states, because that is not permitted in Oregon. It's something that the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board discussed, but ultimately it was decided that either that was not permissible or was not desirable, and there is a single type of facilitator license offered in Oregon, whereas in Colorado there will be a tiered system. We don't know what kind of tiers of licenses will be offered. There has been a little bit of discussion about this on the Colorado board, and they've talked about how the the term tiered is maybe not the best way of referring to these different licenses because it tends to evoke an image of a hierarchy. And so at least for now, the subcommittee that has been dealing with this issue has adopted the term spheres. And I like that, the spheres, uh, different licensing spheres. So there may be a license that's oriented towards healthcare providers who are going to diagnose and treat medical conditions and perhaps work with clients who have particular health conditions and may need uh, a little bit of extra care from an experienced provider. And then you might have more of the traditional or indigenous psychedelic healer or perhaps a more of a, a spiritually oriented facilitator. And so there will be something of the equivalent of the Oregon facilitator who is not a healthcare provider and who can serve clients uh, in that supported adult use capacity. So just to summarize that, there's a single type of license that is offered in Oregon. It's non-medical, it's non-therapeutic, whereas in Colorado, there is the potential at least for a variety of different spheres or, or, or flavors or varieties of licenses Uh, some that are overtly medical, some that are more spiritual or potentially religious or um, recreational, uh, more of an adult use type of uh, of service and uh, license that's available. This might be a good place for me to point out some of the concerns that I have regarding the medical type of license that will likely be offered in Colorado. And I do anticipate that being the primary license type, at least given the little dialogue that I've been able to observe on the Colorado board, because I haven't been meeting all that long, 
I get the impression that that is the primary purpose of the act in the minds of many of the members of the board. Now, not all of the members of the board feel that way. There are some representatives of the more indigenous perspective, the traditional, uh, or in some cases, you might say underground or legacy perspective on psychedelic community use, for example. And so they, I would say, do not necessarily have the medical paradigm as the uh, primary approach or the most desirable approach. And they're doing a good job of sort of pushing back on that a little bit and, and making sure that the other members of the board are aware that the medicalized approach is not the only approach, not necessarily the primary and most important approach. I'll get into that a little bit more when I talk about the board. But I have some concerns about the medical approach, and that's because within a couple years, we're very likely to see FDA-approved psilocybin therapies, the the Compass uh, Pathways proprietary patented formulation of psilocybin, which is a synthetic psilocybin, synthetic Psychedelics are actually prohibited in Colorado, which is interesting. And in Oregon, they are prohibited, at least for the time being. The advisory board and the health authority took the position that that could be something that could be revisited in the future in Oregon. And there was quite a bit of discussion about whether synthetics should be prohibited. And at least for now, they are in Oregon. But that's very clear in Colorado that synthetic psilocybin and other psychedelics will not be permitted uh, at least anytime soon unless there's a change to the law. So the psilocybin that will be FDA approved, if that happens, and it's very likely that it will, will be synthetic proprietary psilocybin developed by Compass Pathways, and the psilocybin offered in Oregon and Colorado will be naturally produced psilocybin extracted from psilocybin producing fungi, mushrooms, or sclerotia, also known as truffles, if not the truffles or mushrooms themselves. I'm fairly certain that some people, if not many people, believe that when the Compass Pathways psilocybin becomes FDA approved, whenever that happens, that it will be rescheduled, which will happen. It will be rescheduled, moved from Schedule 1 of the Controlled Substances list to another schedule, likely Schedule 2. I believe that many people are under the incorrect impression that when psilocybin is rescheduled, it will be not only the Compass Pathways formulation, but all forms of psilocybin, and that is almost certainly not the case. Only the proprietary Compass Pathway psilocybin will be rescheduled and all other forms of the substance, including psilocybin offered in Oregon and Colorado, will remain in Schedule 1. So it will effectively remain a felony at the federal level to produce, consume, sell, share it, etc. That means that the medical psilocybin program in Colorado is on a collision course with the FDA-approved psilocybin that we will see in the next couple of years, most likely. So you will potentially, or most likely, have both licensed healing centers offering natural, non-FDA-approved psilocybin within the Natural Medicine Health Act a regulated program in Colorado for medical indications. And you will also have doctors who are prescribing the FDA-approved Compass Pathways formulation, and that 
poses a problem because the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, may not be very pleased with there being people offering a non-FDA approved version of psilocybin when there is an FDA approved medical um, version of psilocybin. And we've seen many instances of the FDA issuing warning letters to companies that are making medical claims about various substances that are not FDA approved. And these include plant medicines, so to speak, like kratom, the Southeast Asian plant that many people consume as a tea, for example, as well as CBD, which is uh, very popular these days. There are companies that have made medical claims about their CBD or kratom products, and the FDA has sent them cease and desist letters because they are selling non-FDA approved substances. Not everyone shares this concern. They think that the federal government will just look the other way and allow these state-regulated medical programs to proceed without any kind of federal intervention. They often point to the cannabis industry and how, in many cases, the federal government just kind of allows the state cannabis programs to operate. But there are really some significant differences between medical cannabis programs in the states and the medical psilocybin and other psychedelic program that's emerging in Colorado. For instance, in medical cannabis, the physician or prescribing healthcare provider, they don't even write a prescription, they write a recommendation, and then they're not actually dispensing the substance, and they don't really oversee the consumption of the substance the way that a psilocybin facilitator will in Colorado, the facilitator will dispense the substance and be with the client for many hours. And so it's much more of a hands-on process than it is in medical cannabis. So I, I predict that the medical psilocybin programs will be more of a concern potentially for the federal government than medical cannabis programs. I could be wrong. Perhaps that won't be the case. But it's for that reason that I think the Oregon approach to supported adult use may be superior. It's more of a wellness model where people can go and use the substance for any purpose. They're not supposed to be accessing the services with the belief that it's going to treat a health condition. It's written into the informed consent document, for example, that psilocybin services in Oregon are not a medical treatment. It's not FDA approved. And the facilitators are at least supposed to discuss this with the client and impress this upon them. But we'll see how that actually happens in practice. So that's all I will say about that for now. I want to talk a little bit more about the services, though, regardless of whether they are therapeutic or not, what exactly are they? In both states, they consist of the same three phases or stages. There is a preparatory or preparation session, followed by an administration session, and an integration session. So what do I mean by that? The preparation session is a stage in which the facilitator gets to know the client or participant in Colorado. They can potentially form a rapport and see if they're a good fit and if they both want to move on to the administration phase where psilocybin is actually administered. The preparatory phase is also a good time to get informed consent from the client. I have heard some discussion about when the ideal time for informed consent might be, and some people believe that it wouldn't be a great idea to get informed consent 
right at the beginning of the administration session, uh, just before a client receives psilocybin, that might add a little bit to the stress and anxiety of the situation, reading about the potential risks of the experience. So perhaps it's a better idea to complete that process during the preparatory phase. Then on a different day, at least in Oregon, it's required to be on a different day, the administration session occurs where the facilitator uh, is sits with the client. In Oregon, the duration of the administration session is variable depending on the dose that the client receives. So if the client receives less than 2.5 milligrams of psilocybin, their initial administration session has to last one hour, but subsequent administration sessions utilizing less than 2.5 milligrams can last as few as 30 minutes. And then as the dose goes up, the session has to last for longer and longer, up to five or six hours potentially. And then the integration session is another session after the administration session, and that is a a time in which the client can discuss what they experienced during the administration session and and attempt to make some uh, meaning out of it. Now, this is another difference between the Oregon and Colorado programs. The Oregon program only requires a facilitator to offer an integration session to a client, but it doesn't have to be completed. And in Colorado, the integration session, at least one, is required part of the process. Now, I don't know exactly how that would be enforced, and we'll see how that might be enforced as the Natural Medicine Advisory Board moves through the rulemaking process. I'm sure they'll address that at some point. I want to point out that I do not endorse this system, this three-phase system necessarily of preparatory administration and integration sessions. It's not the only model that one could adopt. It's based largely on the clinical trials that have been conducted with psilocybin. And I believe I read somewhere that it originates with the practices of Stanislav Grof, the uh, psychiatrist that um, is a psychedelic pioneer. But this just happens to be the model that has been adopted by the two states that have created regulated psychedelic programs. As far as I'm aware, there is no conclusive evidence that suggests that an integration session is required for uh, the benefits of psychedelics or the preparatory session. It makes intuitive sense that preparation for the experience would be sensible and important and integration could be as well, but we shouldn't just take that as gospel or the definitive truth. There certainly are other approaches that can and likely will be taken in the future. And here I'm just attempting to compare the two state programs And one of the differences is that the integration session is required in Colorado. I do think we need to be a bit cautious and exhibit a healthy skepticism when we hear people claiming that integration is essential, or some people might argue that integration is as important or more important than the psychedelic experience of the administration session. Now that very well might be the case, but there are obviously companies and individuals that stand to profit from selling people these packages. And now in Colorado, by law, people will be be required to purchase a package of preparatory administration and integration sessions. And so when there are those financial interests 
and we don't have the evidence to say that uh, you know this is this is definitely necessary. Of course, we have clinical trials where an integration, se- several integration sessions of sorts have been offered. So it's reasonable to believe that they're not a bad thing. We just don't really know exactly what role they play, and just I think it's good to be a little bit uh, skeptical of claims that you know this is the only way to do things. Something else that I should point out is that when the Oregon law refers to psilocybin services, it's referring to all three of these phases. And so under that law and under the regulations issued by the Oregon Health Authority, facilitators cannot diagnose or treat medical conditions. They have to act in a non-directive manner. They can't make medical claims. If they are licensed healthcare providers, like doctors, nurses, or therapists, they cannot exercise the privileges of those healthcare licenses while acting as psilocybin facilitators. And another point of misunderstanding that many people have is they think that those limitations only apply to the administration stage of the services. That is incorrect. It applies to all three phases that comprise the psilocybin services. So I've heard people say, yeah, the administration session cannot be therapy, but perhaps the integration session can, or perhaps there can be some kind of therapy in the preparatory session. That's incorrect. Now, after the client completes the full series of psilocybin services, so they've finished at least one integration session, then they can go and get therapy with a therapist who's very clear that they're not offering psilocybin services. Now, in theory, that could be the same person. It could be a therapist that's providing them with psilocybin services as a facilitator, not as a healthcare provider. And then after they complete that integration session, they can kind of switch gears and say, all right, look, I'm no longer wearing my facilitator hat. I'm now your therapist and I can offer you therapy. Now that you know gets a little confusing when you're talking about the same person. It could also be two different people. The client could complete the services with a facilitator and then go see their regular psychotherapist or psychiatrist, for example. You might think this is a terrible way to set things up. You might think it doesn't make any sense. But the point is that this is the law in Oregon. This is what psilocybin service centers and facilitators are required to do. And I suspect that there will be a lot of confusion about this and there will be some blurring of the lines. I was having a conversation with a journalist the other day who asked me how will any of this be enforced? And I don't really know the answer to that. We'll have to see how the Oregon Health Authority goes about enforcing these rules regarding uh, non-therapeutic use and the prohibition on using the privileges of healthcare licenses. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that in Colorado, these restrictions do not exist. We don't know exactly what the rules will be because the Natural Medicine Advisory Board has really just started its work uh, You know, only about a month ago. Again, they've only had one meeting of the full board, and the second will be in June. So it's too early to say exactly what the Colorado system will look like, 
but suffice to say that those limitations are not there, and so it is certainly possible and, and perhaps likely that psilocybin facilitators will be able to offer some kind of therapy during the integration session. They might even be able to experiment with forms of therapy during the administration session. Some people think that's not a good idea. You know, you probably don't want to be asking people while they are under the influence of psilocybin or other psychedelics, you know, tell me about your difficult relationship with your parents. It's generally believed that facilitators should have a fairly hands-off approach and let the experience unfold for the client without too much intervention. But at least in theory, in Colorado, if the rules end up allowing it, people could start experimenting with this, this more directive approach to administration. Whether that's a good idea or not is another matter, but at least it, it, it could be permitted under the Natural Medicine Health Act. Another difference between these two state programs is the location at which psilocybin services or natural medicine services can be offered. And there are some significant differences. So in the Oregon program, services must occur at a licensed service center. They can't occur at someone's home. They can't occur out in a forest, at least not in a place that's not also a service center located in the forest. It has to occur at a service center. That's very different from Colorado, where you actually can have an administration session at someone's home. Now, that is a significant improvement over the Oregon program because there are people who have disabilities or mobility impairments. They might have advanced stage cancer or any number of conditions, uh, anxiety or whatever, that might prevent them from going to a service center or healing center. And so it's great to be able to offer these services to people within their homes. Another difference is that unlike in Oregon, in Colorado, you can have a center within a healthcare facility. So again, that's prohibited in Oregon. It is permitted in Colorado. I mentioned earlier that the Natural Medicine Health Act as approved by voters was changed or amended by Senator Steve Fenberg's amendment, which was just signed by Governor Paulus last month. And in its original form, the Natural Medicine Health Act actually was incredibly broad. It allowed for a wide variety of settings for psilocybin and other psychedelics to be offered. So we could have seen a really wide spectrum of potential locations, including outside of a healing center. That was considerably narrowed by the Fenberg Amendment, which I think was unfortunate. It really kind of uh, makes things far more like a traditional medical clinic type model. And, and in that respect, it makes it a lot more like Oregon's model where you have to offer the services at a, at a licensed center. The main difference being is that those centers can be in a healthcare facility in Colorado. And in Colorado, you can offer the services at someone's home. Otherwise, they're fairly similar in terms of location. It didn't have to be that way. The voters actually approved something quite different. There are two more differences that I'll touch on quickly. The first is regarding equity and access to these services. In Measure 109, the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act, there's very, very little mention of access to psilocybin services. And there's little, if any, mention of equity. 
the mention of access is really limited to just a line that says that the advisory board and the health authority need to develop a long-term strategic plan to ensure that psilocybin services are accessible. So it just basically requires them to make a plan. It doesn't say anything about requiring them to implement that plan. And we're now two and a half years into the rulemaking process in Oregon, and the board has really just started talking about this plan. So it clearly has been viewed as an afterthought by the board and the agency. Nothing's really been done about it just yet, except some very preliminary discussions about it at the last couple advisory board meetings. And access and equity came up many times during the rulemaking process. And there was an equity, a health equity subcommittee that was The first subcommittee formed, it was chaired by Dr. Rachel Knox, and there were many very qualified individuals on that committee. And I do think that their recommendations certainly had some influence on the rules that were ultimately produced by the health authority. But for the most part, I think it's safe to say that issues regarding access and equity were largely sidelined throughout the process. One thing that's particularly worth noting is a framework for spiritual and religious use that was proposed by Oregon attorney John Dennis at one point, and ultimately it was rejected by the health authority on the grounds that it might violate the establishment clause, which says that the government cannot help establish a religion. And that was very unfortunate because throughout the rulemaking process in Oregon, There was a focus on medical scientific perspectives, despite the fact that Oregon's program is non-medical and non-therapeutic. And so really, John Dennis's framework that he proposed was really an attempt to just put religious and spiritual communities on par with the medical Uh, practitioners who had been the focus of the rulemaking process for the most part. So it really wasn't an attempt to privilege or prioritize spiritual and religious groups, but just put them on the same footing or give them the same chance as these these many therapists and other healthcare providers that want to act as psilocybin facilitators. Nevertheless, the health authority used the establishment clause as an excuse to reject Uh, John Dennis's proposal. And so what we're left with are rules in Oregon that have many good things. They have some um, less than ideal qualities, but in the end, equity and access were really not given a whole lot of consideration. And that is probably the reason that we're starting to see some of the pricing come out of the, for the services. There are I believe three service centers that have published their prices and on the low end I've seen a full dose psilocybin session costing $2,800 to $3,500 and then another service center in Bend, Oregon is claiming to charge $15,000 for a single psilocybin services series. So. Perhaps if equity and access had been more of a priority during the rulemaking process and and also in the drafting process of Measure 109, because there are some limitations potentially in in the law that might constrain the agency to some extent, 
that might be why we see these really high prices and perhaps if equity and access were emphasized, the services might have been more affordable. Now, we can contrast that with the Natural Medicine Health Act of Colorado and, and also the Fenberg Amendment, which does have a paragraph that talks about equity, but it kind of hedges a little bit. It says to establish when, and th this is talking about some of the duties of the board and the, the governing agency, it says to establish when financially feasible procedures, policies, and programs to ensure this Article 170, so the Health Act, Natural Medicine Health Act, and rules promulgated to it are equitable and inclusive and promote the licensing, registration, and permitting of and provision of natural medicine and natural medicine product to persons from communities that have been disproportionately harmed by high rates of arrest for controlled substances. So there's more to this paragraph. I won't bore you with the actual text, but suffice to say, it says that when financially feasible, so there's kind of a, a hedge there that the advisory board and the governing agency should consider equity and access. So already this is far more inclusive of equity and access considerations than in Oregon, but this actually came up during the Natural Medicine Advisory Board subcommittee meeting today on, on uh, the equity subcommittee meeting where one of the assistant attorney generals, Brian Arankar, said he pointed out this limitation of when financially feasible. So if you're talking about taking money away from the licensing fees that are charged to license businesses in order to create equity, his interpretation is that might violate the act. So that's very limiting if you can't use some of the funds raised from licensing to create equity. And so even though there is a lot more from the beginning regarding equity in the Natural Medicine Health Act, the board and the governing agencies might be constrained in what they can actually achieve. The final difference between Oregon and Colorado's regulated psychedelic programs that I want to mention is what's required for data collection from clients. Now, this is a really deep rabbit hole that I don't want to go down, and I've written about it previously. For instance, I have an article out in Wired Magazine called Seeking Psychedelics, Check the Data Privacy Clause, and that's from November of 2022. I also have some articles on psychedelicweek.com that you can read. But for now, I'll just talk about some of the key differences regarding data collection between these two state programs. Now, first, I'll talk about the bills as they were originally written, at least Measure 109 in Oregon, the Oregon Psilocybin Services Act, was written with very, very strong confidentiality protections for clients. It basically prohibited any client information, and now that's any information at all, whether it's uh, personally identifiable information, that is information that has someone's name or phone number or address on it, something that can be used to identify them, or de-identified information where the name has been removed or the phone number and address have been removed. So any type of data from the client was not allowed to leave the service center in Oregon, unless there are some very narrow exceptions that are met. Some of those are if the Oregon Health Authority opens an investigation into a service center, then perhaps some of those client records might leave the service center. And another would be if 
someone's safety, health or safety is an, is an imminent risk. Now, of course, somebody could provide consent to allow their data to leave the service center, but the default rule was that there was very, very strong confidentiality protection in Oregon. Now, that, that changed recently with the enactment of SB 303, which was sponsored by Senator Elizabeth Steiner in Oregon. This is a data collection bill that makes the default to collect data from clients and actually send it to the Oregon Health Authority. So this is a direct contradiction of what voters approved in Measure 109. And again, I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole now. I'll talk about it at some other time. But that bill, SB 303, started out far worse than it ultimately ended up being. It's still quite bad, in my opinion. But initially, they wanted to collect all kinds of personal information. The scope of that data collection was narrowed a bit in the ultimate bill, thanks to the efforts of some grassroots organizations, namely the Oregon Psilocybin Services Collaborative Community, or OPSCC. And I collaborated a bit as a volunteer with this organization in their efforts to respond to SB 303. Of course, lawmakers, well, Elizabeth Steiner specifically, put a clause into her bill that could allow the health authority to just revert back to the original version of her bill. So it remains to be seen exactly what will happen once all is said and done and the rules to implement her bill are published. But suffice to say that Measure 109 started out very strongly protecting client information. Now with that amendment, SB 303 client data by default flows to the Oregon Health Authority and then on to the Oregon Health Sciences University. And I've written about that quite a bit on Psychedelic Week, the newsletter, and so I won't talk too much about it here. Now, if we compare the original version of Measure 109 as approved by voters to the Natural Medicine Health Act in Colorado, as approved by voters last December, there is a significant difference. The Natural Medicine Health Act did not have those really robust confidentiality protections. There was actually a whole section on client confidentiality in Measure 109 in Oregon. The Natural Medicine Health Act in Colorado lacks that, and it actually required DORA, the governing agency, to collect data. In my opinion, I think what happened is the drafters of the Natural Medicine Health Act realized that Measure 109 was really going to restrict their ability to collect data, so they changed that in the Natural Medicine Health Act. There are certain organizations that funded both of these political campaigns and were involved in the drafting of both bills. And um, again, I don't want to go down a tangent, but just to conclude about the data collection, as currently written in Senator Fenberg's amendment, the board is required to evaluate real-world data related to the Natural Medicine Health Act. And so this is part of this push to sort of turn these state-regulated programs into some form of clinical trials that some groups believe can augment or replace the FDA clinical trial process. And I'm very concerned about it. I'll probably dedicate some episode or some time solely to that issue. But it's quite concerning, especially because psilocybin and other psychedelics obviously continue to be Schedule One controlled substances. So even though Oregon and Colorado 
have legalized them for supported adult use, they're still illegal on the federal level. And it's quite concerning to have state government agencies collecting and consolidating client data where it will be very easily accessible by law enforcement, like the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. We don't know how political winds will shift in the future. We don't know who's going to be president in a couple of years. And so we really don't know what the priorities of these administrations will be. And when data is concentrated in these state agencies, it becomes a one-stop shop for federal agencies to just go and gather it up. And so it puts clients at legal risk and even many other social risks because uh, psychedelic use is so heavily stigmatized. So in terms of differences, I would say in the end, right now as it stands, arguably Oregon still has better data protection for clients, although it really remains to be seen because we, we haven't yet seen the rules recommended by the Colorado Advisory Board or adopted by the governing agencies. And and until we see those, it's a bit too early to accurately compare them. I'm hopeful that as the Natural Medicine Advisory Board in Colorado goes through the rulemaking process, they will acknowledge and emphasize the importance of client confidentiality and will create a system for data collection that really protects clients and respects their autonomy and allows them to opt in to data collection so that it is truly optional. But we'll see what happens. I think so far, I've seen a lot of pushing aggressive data collection, primarily from one of the board members, Billy Wynn, who runs the Public Health and Health Equity Subcommittee. And his background is in health consulting. He works with a lot of pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. And I see him using a lot of the same language that has been used by Elizabeth Steiner in Oregon and the Healing Advocacy Fund in Oregon to push their data collection agenda. So that does worry me a little bit. There certainly are some voices that I think will advocate for very aggressive data collection that will put clients at risk. If you're not familiar with the Healing Advocacy Fund, it's a lobbying firm that started following the approval of Measure 109 by Oregon voters. And the Healing Advocacy Fund is funded by a political organization called the New Approach PAC, and it works to advance the political goals of New Approach. In Oregon, it does this by attempting to influence the implementation of Measure 109 and the legislation like SB 303 that amends it in ways that the New Approach PAC desires. And after the passage of Proposition 122 in Colorado, they opened a Colorado branch of the Healing Advocacy Fund, and they're doing the same kind of lobbying in Colorado. The New Approach PAC invested a lot of money in the campaigns to pass both Measure 109 in Oregon and Proposition 122 in Colorado, so they seem to have a real interest in controlling how things unfold in both those states. I don't know to what extent the Healing Advocacy Fund has been influencing individual board members, but the language used by Billy Wynn very closely resembles the same kind of rhetoric used by the Healing Advocacy Fund, the New Approach PAC, 
and Elizabeth Steiner, who works very closely with the Oregon branch of the Healing Advocacy Fund. There's also a member of the board, Wendy Buxton Andrade, who is a commissioner for Prowers County, Colorado, and she chairs the Opioid Settlement Board for Region 19 in Colorado, and she appears to be very favorable towards tracking and monitoring, and so that concerns me a bit uh, as well. But there are many members of the board who I have not heard from regarding data collection, and so it's quite possible that in the end they might come up with a very sensible method of handling data that protects client confidentiality, but that remains to be seen. Since I'm already talking about the Natural Medicine Advisory Board, now is probably a good time to transition from talking about the differences between Oregon and Colorado's regulated psychedelic programs to talking about an update on the Natural Medicine Advisory Board. But first, now that I think about it, another difference between Colorado and Oregon's programs relates to their advisory boards. There are some really significant differences between both the boards themselves and the processes that they're following. So I think I'll talk a little bit about that as a way to transition into talking about the Colorado board. So what I mean by differences is primarily in the procedures that they're following. And in retrospect, I really have to give the Oregon Health Authority a lot of credit for the way that they made a lot of the materials used by the board available to the public. They created a website where they published recordings of every single meeting of the board and its subcommittees. And an incredible amount of thought went into posting those recordings, organizing them, and also including the documents that the board considered and discussed. So, you know, I have many criticisms of the health authorities' rulemaking processes. They were very non-transparent in some ways. For example, there were a lot of behind-the-scenes interactions between the Healing Advocacy Fund and OHA officials and board leadership. So things like that are certainly worth critiquing, but in terms of making materials available to the public, the health authority did a great job. And the agency also did a great job of involving the public. I would say that at almost every single board meeting, there was an opportunity for the public to comment and directly address the board member and health authority officials regarding the meeting that had just taken place. Now, in some occasions, they didn't allow much time. You know, maybe it was just 10 minutes or so. On some occasions, they ran out of time and they did not have the public comment session. But for the vast majority of meetings, they had public comment. And in many cases, I think the public actually influenced the direction of the conversation of the board and the health authority. Now, this is a big distinction between the process in Oregon and what I've seen so far in Colorado. In Colorado, that natural medicine advisory board is locked down tight. There are zero opportunities for the public to interact with the board. There is no public comment session. Even when you go to the meetings, you can't see anyone else who's in the meeting. In Oregon, you could see all the members of the public in the Zoom room, kind of like the Brady Bunch, you know, Hollywood Squares type image where you could see, oh, look, there are all these people in the meeting. But in Colorado, they've locked it down tight. 
all you can see is the faces of the board members and the government officials. So there's no interaction. Uh, You can't see the other people in the meeting. And then when it comes to documents, the advisory board in Colorado is sent some documents ahead of time to to prepare for the meeting, and then they discuss them during the meeting. And sometimes they'll scroll through the documents. You can see little parts of it and maybe screen grab them, but they're not posted for the public. And I actually reached out to Dora to ask if there was a place where I could find some of these documents. Are they going to post them or make them available somewhere? And they told me that if you want to access the documents, you have to submit a public records request. So that is very, very different from Oregon. It means that it's, it can be quite burdensome for people to access these documents. It's really not transparent and it's a, it's a problem. And I, I don't know the reason for this. You know, I can speculate the same healing advocacy fund that kind of worked behind the scenes to influence the Oregon health authority is also working behind the scenes in Colorado to influence Dora and presumably the natural medicine advisory board. And, you know, this is pure speculation, but I suspect that they were not very pleased with the impact that public input had in Oregon. And so they possibly advised Dora in Colorado to lock those meetings down tight. Just don't let the public meddle with the board process. That's not really a very democratic approach to the rulemaking. And uh, I remember in meetings between Senator Fenberg and some of the Colorado psychedelic communities before he passed his amendment, these activists were asking him for certain changes in his amendment. And his response in one case was, you know, I suggest you interact with the Natural Medicine Advisory Board. That's a way to influence the rules. But Unfortunately, there's really no way for the public to do that. So that's a really significant change between these two programs. And I thought I should mention that before talking a bit more about where the board is at. And really, by the way, there's been a lack of transparency surrounding the board from the very beginning. I wrote an article about that on Psychedelic Week. It's called something like the Disappearing Colorado Psychedelic Advisory Board because For months, the public heard nothing about this board and when it was going to have its first meeting. And that's another contrast with Oregon. In Oregon, the board met really almost immediately after being formed. There was no lag time. I I don't remember exactly, but it was just a matter of um, days or weeks before the first meeting. So they really hit the ground running. But in Colorado, there seemed to be some significant delays and there was not much transparency, if any, surrounding the board's uh, appointment process and and, uh, the meetings. Anyway, at this point, the board is up and running, you know, albeit without the the transparency and public interaction of Oregon, but they're, they're doing their work. Again, the full board has met only twice, and they'll have their third meeting this month, but they did form a handful of subcommittees, and they've been meeting mostly every two weeks. So they've had quite a bit of activity, even though uh, the full board has has not met all that much. Another interesting point of distinction is that in Oregon, there were five subcommittees, and they had very, very simple names like products, research, licensing, health equity, and uh, training. 
So it was very easy to understand what each subcommittee was going to be doing. But the Colorado subcommittees have extremely complicated names that seem to have multiple parts that don't necessarily relate to each other. It makes it very difficult to predict which issues each subcommittee will be addressing. And in the board meetings that I've attended, it seems like some of the members themselves are confused about which subcommittee has jurisdiction over particular issues. To be fair, that happened in Oregon as well, but it seems to be more of a pervasive issue in Colorado, and it might be because of the somewhat complicated and confusing naming of the subcommittees. If you'd like to know the names of the different subcommittees in Colorado, you may be out of luck because DORA does not list them anywhere on the Natural Medicine Health Act website or the website for the Natural Medicine Advisory Board. You can get a sense of what they are if you go into the calendar that's very difficult to find on the website and look through each day of the week and try to find the meetings of each subcommittee. This is very different from Oregon, which very clearly laid out the different subcommittees and when they would meet. I'll read some of the names of the different subcommittees to you to give you a sense of where some of the confusion might be coming from. Some of the subcommittees have fairly straightforward names, like the Indigenous and Religious Use Outreach Subcommittee. That sounds fairly straightforward. There's also a committee called the Qualifications, Training, and Licensing Subcommittee. So that gives you a sense that they're going to be talking about training and licensing for different professionals in this emerging market. But things get a little bit more confusing after that. There's the Products, Research, and Data Subcommittee. So kind of combining data collection with products and research. They have some some connection between these things. But it gets even worse after that. There's the Harm Reduction and Public Safety Subcommittee. That sounds straightforward until you hear the name of the Public Health and Health Equity Subcommittee. That sounds very similar to Harm Reduction and Public Safety Subcommittee. To complicate things further, there's the Emergency Response Safety and Ethics Subcommittee. So I'm not sure how they're distinguishing between things like public health and safety versus emergency response and safety, which are the topics in two different subcommittees. So it's quite confusing. I think all of these are obviously very important topics to be addressing, but you combine the confusing nature of the names with the lack of information on the Natural Medicine Advisory Board website, and it really leads to a lot of opacity if you're a member of the public or the media trying to understand what exactly is going on. I'm actually bringing up the Natural Medicine Advisory Board or Natural Medicine Health Act homepage right now just to see what kind of information is there. They have a section at the bottom called Meeting Minutes, but it looks like they only have meeting minutes from April. So we're now in June and they don't yet have any of the minutes posted from May. So far, they have minutes from one meeting of the subcommittee on product research and data. They have minutes from one meeting on the subcommittee on qualifications, training, and licensing. And they have the minutes from one meeting of the subcommittee on harm reduction and public safety. Now, there hasn't been a whole lot 
achieved by the board so far because obviously a lot of what they're doing is, is setting up their procedures and getting to know each other. So I wouldn't have expected them to achieve a whole lot by now. But there have been a couple meetings so far this week. Today there was a meeting of the Public Health and Health Equity Subcommittee. And I think I'll talk a little bit about that. That subcommittee is led by Billy Wynn, who owns a health consulting business. And if you go to his webpage, you can see that he's consulted with various pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies. And interestingly, he's one of the few lawyers on the Natural Medicine Advisory Board. He has a JD degree from the University of Virginia. I appreciate his perspective, but uh, I will say of the meetings, and I've, I've, I believe I've attended all of the meetings of this subcommittee so far, and I've found that the conversation has largely been dominated by the topic of insurance reimbursement for natural medicine services in Colorado. And I suspect that's because Billy Wynn does a lot of consulting with insurance companies, so you know, that's what he's accustomed to thinking about. But in my opinion, that's not a good use of the equity subcommittee's time. And Wynn appears to have this idea that by ensuring that insurance covers natural medicine services, that's going to ensure equity. Insurance is the means of achieving equity in the natural medicine services program. But I hate to be such a critic about this, but it's a fantasy to believe that insurance companies are going to cover the provision of psilocybin, a Schedule One controlled substance. I just don't believe that's going to happen. Keep in mind that healing centers are not going to open for several years in Colorado. By that time, we very well might have FDA-approved psilocybin, the Compass Pathways Formulation and Protocol. If insurance companies are going to cover any type of psilocybin service, it's going to be the Compass FDA-approved version. They're not going to cover the naturally produced fungal-derived psilocybin that will be made available in healing centers in Colorado. And again, this gets back to this misconception that many people appear to have that once the FDA approves compass psilocybin, psilocybin will be rescheduled. And I think a lot of people falsely believe that all forms of psilocybin will be rescheduled. In reality, it's really just the compass proprietary patented formula and protocol. And so the Oregon and Colorado naturally derived psilocybin and all other forms of psilocybin will remain in Schedule 1. They'll be federally illegal, and insurance companies are not going to fund them. So this equity committee led by Wynn is really looking at things backwards. They're just basically accepting from the, from the get-go that the services in Colorado are going to be really expensive. And I think they're looking at the numbers coming out of Oregon to draw that conclusion. They're saying this is going to be super expensive. They're taking that as a given. And they're saying, how can we compensate for that by offering grants to people or trying to advocate for insurance. And the problem is what they really should be doing is looking at ways to make the services themselves less expensive. That's the only way that these services will be made more accessible to people. This promise of insurance 
or this this uh, presumption that insurance will cover these services in the future is totally moving in the wrong direction. And so I just really hope that someone will put the brakes on that and steer them back on track. And I think there was some discussion from a few people on how to do that today in the equity subcommittee meeting. One of the board members and subcommittee members, Lundy, put together a really nice proposal for the group. So this is one of those documents that circulated to the group before the meeting. The public cannot access it. You can only get little glimpses of it when they show it on screen. But it looked like a very nice proposal that had several different approaches to address the uh, accessibility problem. Now, insurance coverage was one of them, so I don't really think that's a great bullet point to focus on, but there were some other ideas in there. Now, when Lundy introduced this document, it was pretty much met with silence uh, for a while from the other subcommittee members, and it kind of gave me chills of remembering the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board when people would raise equity considerations and much of the board or subcommittee would just respond with silence. So that was kind of what it was like for a little bit of this equity meeting. And you would think that as an equity subcommittee, they should be really, really digging into that stuff. There was an interesting response from Joshua Goodwin, who is a subcommittee member. And he said in response to Lundy's proposal, you know, a lot of these sort of programs or projects that we are considering to reduce cost might paradoxically actually add cost and make the program more expensive. Now, I see a little bit of a problem with that because it seems like an excuse to just avoid making any effort to implement equity considerations to make things more accessible. But in principle, I agree with the spirit of that statement, the sentiment of it, because he's basically saying to keep things keep things simple and all these other programs like grants and things will add to the cost. Now, I might not agree with him on the specifics, but generally speaking, I think they should try to make things simple, but the simplicity should come in terms of the regulation. The Oregon program, there are many good things about its regulation, but it is very bloated It's probably overly complicated, overly burdensome on these businesses, service centers. They're trying to get up and running. They're basically being, they're drowning in regulation. And so I think there is a kernel of truth in what Joshua Goodwin was saying that they should keep the regulation very simple and streamlined and actively think of ways to reduce he didn't, he didn't say this part. This is where I'm picking up where he left off. They really should focus on reducing the cost of the services themselves, not on these Band-Aid fixes like the hope that there would be insurance coverage or providing grants to people. I hope I'm explaining this clearly. It, it seems to me like they're just assuming the prices will be sky high. There's nothing we can do about it. How can we then compensate for these sky high prices? And to me, that's thinking about it in a very backwards way. You should be looking. I mean, they haven't even made the rules yet. They should make the rules with an eye towards keeping them light and non-burdensome and, and so that the service centers or healing centers don't have to pass the cost on to the clients. 
that's how they can really keep the cost down. They should be more open to these alternative structures like the entheogenic framework proposed by John Dennis in Oregon. And I think there are people on this Colorado board who are more likely to embrace ideas like that than some of the people on the Oregon board were. Now, I hope I'm not coming off as being overly critical of Joshua Goodwin or anyone on the board, really. Uh, Actually, Josh Goodwin had a really great suggestion yesterday at a different subcommittee meeting, and that was to take a very close look at the rules that the Oregon Health Authority published in December and sort of dissect them. And I thought that was a great idea. So he basically steered that subcommittee in the direction of looking at certain sections of the Oregon rules and deciding either, yes, we like this, let's adopt this the way it is. No, let's uh, take some and leave other parts or modify parts of it, or let's just reject certain sections of it altogether. And so the subcommittee then went through some sections of the Oregon regulations and had a very thoughtful discussion about them. So I thought that was a very good idea that Goodwin came up with. I guess the only caveat or the potential risk there, which I think the subcommittee itself acknowledged, at least in some respects, is that they don't want to just be overly influenced by Oregon and they should think for themselves and come up with their own solutions. And I agree with that. But it did seem like a very efficient way to make some progress and not completely reinvent the wheel. So I think that's pretty much all I will say in terms of updates on the Natural Medicine Advisory Board. There's a lot more that's gone on. They have an indigenous use subcommittee that is really fantastic, but I'll comment on some of these other committees at another time. That's just a quick look at some of the things that the board has been discussing. And again, they're really just getting started, so there will be much more to talk about as they get further underway. The third thing I'd like to talk about in this episode is the increasing movement to emphasize decriminalization over the creation of these state-regulated programs. This isn't really a new phenomenon. Even before Measure 109 was approved by Oregon voters, there were groups who were very critical of the ballot initiative. These were groups like Decriminalized Nature and the Portland Psychedelic Society. They were very concerned that Measure 109 or legislation like it would make services prohibitively expensive. They would make them inaccessible to many people. And it turns out that that very well may be the case, as we're seeing with these very high prices for service centers in Oregon that range from $2,800 up to $15,000 for a single series, uh, you know, preparation, administration, integration of psilocybin services. So even before Measure 109 was approved, there were groups advocating for decriminalization. And initially, Measure 109 actually had sections regarding decriminalization that were split off. And we now see remnants of that in Measure 110, the partial decriminalization of not only many psychedelics, but also just other controlled substances, including cocaine and heroin. But the concerns of many of those groups that opposed Measure 109 
are now manifesting in the the overly restrictive regulations, the very high licensing fees. So the service centers in Oregon have to pay $10,000 every year as a licensing fee just to operate. And facilitators have to pay $2,000 a year uh, with some exceptions where they can pay a lowered rate of $1,000. But most facilitators will probably pay $2,000. That is a huge burden on them. And as a result, we're really not seeing the numbers of licensed businesses that many people expected to see. And that's a real problem because the program depends on the licensing revenue to support the program. And the OHA psilocybin services section has been over budget. They announced that at the December board meeting of the psilocybin advisory board. And the health authority has asked the legislature for $6.6 million of general funds of taxpayer money to bail out the program, which was supposed to be self-sufficient at this point. And then the data collection bill, SB 303, that was recently enacted and was sponsored by Senator Elizabeth Steiner, adds additional expense, which the OHA estimated to be approximately $280,000, which I believe is every year to pay the salary of some staff and pay for some other overhead. So this program has been very expensive. There are fewer businesses opening. Many companies that were supposed to open for business in Oregon have announced that they are not going to do so. The most high profile case was the Synthesis Institute, which is a Dutch company that offers training programs and retreat centers in the Netherlands. And they bought a very expensive property. I think it was $3.6 million in Buckhorn Springs in the Ashland area of Southern Oregon, where they were going to open a, a retreat center and training program. And they went out of business and the students in their training program were left in the cold. Uh, I'd have to follow up on what happened to them, but it was very disconcerting. These people had paid many thousands of dollars for the training program that just suddenly collapsed without any warning from the company. So suffice to say that many people are understandably quite skeptical about these state-regulated programs, and so there is a movement gaining momentum to advocate for decriminalization first, or at least to include decriminalization alongside these bills for state-regulated programs. And that is, in fact, what happened with Proposition 122, which became the Natural Medicine Health Act in Colorado. But it was very controversial. There was a lot of conflict in the state between the Natural Medicine Colorado campaign, which was advocating for the ballot initiative, and groups who opposed it and were collecting signatures to put a decriminalization bill or a ballot initiative solely for decriminalization on the ballot, but they didn't get enough signatures because it's very expensive to do so. They didn't have the millions of dollars in support that the Natural Medicine Colorado campaign had access to, which originated from the New Approach PAC and other donors. In any case, due to the efforts of Colorado activists, there was a decriminalization component added to Proposition 122, but it did appear to be one of the more rushed, less well-drafted portions of the Natural Medicine Health Act. It really does look like kind of an afterthought, even though that wasn't really the intention of people who pushed for it. But unfortunately, that's the case. 
And almost immediately after voters enacted the Natural Medicine Health Act, we saw Senator Steve Fenberg come in and he was talking about introducing possession limits, constricting the rights that were created in the decriminalization portion of the act, which is called the personal use side of the act. And as it stands, there are no firm limits on possession. There are limits, but the limitations are worded in the following way. They say that personal possession is limited to the amount necessary to do certain things like to share psychedelics in a community setting for spiritual use, for example. It's sort of a a squishy standard that's not very clear, and Fenberg was suggesting that in his amendment he would potentially introduce possession limits. There was a great effort from Colorado activists to push back on that, and they were successful in avoiding those limits. But that is all part of this growing movement to emphasize decriminalization. People are very concerned about the power structures that are taking shape through these state-regulated programs, and they believe that psychedelic communities in different states have a right to gather and organize and share knowledge and information and psychedelic substances, and they believe that that is a responsible and effective way to reintroduce these substances back into society, as well as to honor and respect the ways that these substances have traditionally been used by communities around the world and by underground communities in the United States or so-called legacy communities. And we've seen at least 15 cities across the country agree with that approach. They have introduced local resolutions to make the enforcement of criminal penalties related to psychedelics their lowest law enforcement priority. That means that these jurisdictions will not spend resources uh, and, and finances toward arresting people and investigating potential offenses related to psychedelics. So this is a a movement across the country that appears to be gathering steam. There's no sign of slowing down. There are some pretty significant cities that have done this, including Seattle, Washington, Detroit, Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Oakland and Santa Cruz, California, just to name a few. Massachusetts appears to be the state that leads the nation in the number of cities that have introduced these resolutions. The cities there include Cambridge, Somerville, Northampton, East Hampton, and most recently Salem. And I'm probably missing some I know that other cities in Massachusetts are considering it, and that is largely thanks to the efforts of a group called Bay Staters for Natural Medicine that has been very effective in introducing these decriminalization resolutions into the local uh, city councils. Washington is another state where a couple cities have introduced resolutions, Seattle and Port Townsend, Washington. And I know that in Seattle, activists are trying to implement an ordinance that would like a resolution, but with significant legal force. A resolution is really just a statement of policy that doesn't really have legal effect. It has symbolic value, and I think it does have some real value as well. There's even a group called Decrim First that meets and discusses the importance of decriminalization. And then I would say probably most significant 
of all, California has a bill sponsored by Senator Scott Wiener called SB 58 that would decriminalize psychedelics statewide. And it recently passed the California Senate and is now headed for consideration in the House. If this is successful, it would certainly be the largest state to decriminalize psychedelics. It would be the first state to do so through the legislature because both Oregon and Colorado have decriminalization in some form, at least partial decriminalization, but no state has implemented either a regulated psychedelic program or psychedelic decriminalization through the legislature. That has been an unexplored frontier that has not yet been reached. I don't think SB 58 has much of a chance at all of passing. I certainly hope it does. I wish them the best of luck, but I don't know that California is going to be the first state to take this bold step. I certainly, you know, think that would be an incredible achievement, but it just doesn't seem very likely. But the fact that it's gotten this far is really symbolic of the importance that people place on decriminalization as opposed to state regulation such as supervised or supported adult use. There's one more topic that I want to discuss in this episode, and I'll keep it relatively brief because the podcast is getting quite long as it is, but the topic is the role of psychedelics as a harm reduction tool. And part of the reason that I raised this is on May 31st, the state of Kentucky announced that it would allocate $42 million from the Opioid Lawsuit Settlement Fund toward the study of ibogaine as a potential solution to the overdose crisis. Now, I think that the role of psychedelics in this context, in harm reduction as a tool to address the overdose crisis, is underappreciated, and it's really interesting and creative to see a state utilizing those opioid settlement funds in this way. I haven't looked into the proposal enough to really comment on it in great detail, and it sounds as though there are a lot of details that are yet to be worked out because they're going to form some kind of a advisory body to discuss exactly how this will work. I did read somewhere, however, that there would be a public-private partnership of some kind, and so that certainly might raise some eyebrows. I mean, what company is going to to get the benefit of this funding and potentially be able to patent and commercialize the ibogaine therapy. And then there are, of course, questions of biopiracy and the appropriation of ibogaine, which is a substance that's used by practitioners of the Bowiti religion in Gabon, West Africa. And so it raises a lot of questions, but generally speaking, I like the idea of raising the visibility of the possibility that psychedelics could be at least part of the solution to the overdose crisis. And it's interesting to see a state utilizing these opioid settlement funds in a creative way. Now, Ibogaine is notable because it has some unusual cardiac risks that other psychedelics don't appear to have. And I mentioned this earlier when I was talking about the Natural Medicine Health Act and how Senator Fenberg's amendment has potentially accelerated the addition of Ibogaine to the offerings of healing centers in Colorado. And now we're seeing Kentucky allocating these $42 million to the development of Ibogaine. And there are some other companies that have 
ibogaine-derived therapies in the pipeline. So we're really starting to see a lot more discussion of ibogaine, even though it is arguably uh, less well-studied than psilocybin. Already, I'm seeing some of the media cover Kentucky's announcement as sort of a risky plan that could pay off or might not, but it's certainly something that's worth exploring. I'll just need to have more information about exactly uh, what the details are of this proposal in order to comment on it further, so I'll pick that back up at another time. But this is just part of a larger discussion that we need to be having about finding additional tools to help with the overdose crisis, which has reached unprecedented proportions. It was only a year or two ago that we had a record of 100,000 overdose deaths in a single year. So things have not been moving in the right direction, and it certainly seems worthwhile to explore new opportunities and new ways of addressing this public health issue. I'm sure Ibogaine is not the sole answer to this public health problem, but it's certainly worth exploring, and I just hope that the states and institutions that are investing in the development of ibogaine-related therapies do so in a responsible and transparent way. I'll pick this issue up again when I have more information about it. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Psychedelic Week podcast. Please be sure to read the free Psychedelic Week newsletter available at psychedelicweek.com. Subscribe if you're interested in getting information about the newsletter and the podcast in your inbox. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again next time.